that was my unlock moment when I went back to school, when I said, I've just become the CEO of a US public company. I was scared, but not afraid. My unlock moment was I had to learn, go back to school and learn the power of servant leadership, the power of the most three most important words I've ever learned in my life. I don't know. And how did that feel? It was, it was scary, but it was good. And I'm so pleased and grateful that I had the opportunity to do it. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life, and you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times, and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. My guest today is something of a legend in the business world, a champion of inclusive leadership and famous for building a culture of incredible employee engagement. Gary Ridge, the self-styled coach coach, has 25 years of experience as chairman and CEO of WD-40 company, makers of the iconic penetrating oil. Most of us have probably reached for our can when we've had a squeaky wheel or a stuck lock. It's the kind of product that needs no introduction and no squeaky or squeak-free home can be without it. Gary is also an adjunct professor at the University of San Diego, where he teaches the principles and practice of corporate culture in the Master of Science in Executive Leadership program. Gary's philosophy on company culture is based on Aristotle's quote, pleasure in the job puts perfection in the work. Turning that principle into action, Gary believes that all leaders can create a workplace where you go to work each day, make a contribution to something bigger than yourself, learn something new, feel safe, are protected, and are provided freedom by a set of values and go home happy. He's passionate about the learning and empowering organizational culture he's helped establish at the WD-40 company. In 2009, Gary co-authored a book with renowned speaker and author Ken Blanchard outlining his effective leadership techniques titled Helping People Win at Work, a business philosophy called Don't Mark My Paper, Help Me Get an A. A native of Australia, Gary holds a certificate in modern retailing and a Master of Science in Executive Leadership from the University of San Diego. And, like several others who've graced the unlock moment in recent times, Gary is a member of the esteemed Marshall Goldsmith 100 group of the world's leading executive coaches. I'm looking forward to hearing Gary's unique perspective on inclusive leadership and how to build a culture where your people truly engage. And, of course, to discover the unlock moments when he figured out this remarkable clarity about the path ahead. Gary Ridge, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. G'day, Gary. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. Thank you for inviting me along. I have to give you my official title. Is that okay? Go for it. G'day. I'm Gary. I'm the consciously incompetent, probably wrong, and roughly right chairman of WD-40 Company. <laughs> I'm glad that you said that, and I, I didn't have to work my way through it. <laughs> um, I, I, I love the authenticity. 
So you spend a long time with one company, and one of the things you're most famous for is the transformation of employee engagement within WD40. I've had at least two guests on the Unlock Moment personally name-check you, including the inimitable Dr. Marshall Goldsmith. So I really had to have you on to tell us the story. I'm so grateful you accepted the invitation. So let's start with Aristotle. Pleasure in the job puts perfection in the work. What makes a job pleasurable? Well, I, I think that, you know, number one is belonging. You know, one of the biggest desires we have as human beings is to belong. Um, people want to be treated with respect and dignity. Um, people want to have a true purpose. You said earlier, making a contribution to something bigger than yourself. People want to learn. They want to be learners, and you have to create an environment where there's a learning environment. But, you know, um, even apart from what Aristotle said, you know, in 1997, when I was given the privilege to lead the company as CEO, I was reading, I was on a plane traveling from Los Angeles to Sydney, and I was reading some of the Dalai Lama's work, and there was this quote, and it's, I've probably quoted this more than as equally to Aristotle's statement, and the quote is, our purpose in life is to make people happy. If we can't make them happy, at least don't hurt them. And I think that was the catalyst in my thinking in that I saw a lot of people in organizations being hurt by toxic leaders. Um, and that really got me uh, intrigued about the subject of servant leadership. And it's really interesting that the, the famous research from Gallup on management is that the of all of the variants between those most engaged organizations and least engaged organizations, 70% of that variance can be explained by the manager. And is that, that's your experience as well, that, you, that you've seen the impact of leadership, both positive and negative, on engagement. Yeah, most people leave organizations because they hate their boss. And for you, had you always been in work where you enjoyed your work or had you had your own personal experience of that? On, you know, earlier in your career too? Um, I think I've, I'd always enjoyed what I was doing. You know, I, I've only ever applied for one job in my life, and that was the first job that I took in back in Australia when I joined a major retailer down there in their management trainee program. And you know, on from that, I was kind of recruited through two positions until I joined WD-40 in Australia in 1987. And, but I always made myself a promise if I ever got up every day and I was not excited about going to work, I wouldn't go. And fortunately, I've been in positions where I'd found roles to be exciting. Um, and the same, you know, being the CEO of a US public company for 25 years, um, you know, that's, there, are, there were days when that the, they weren't as much fun as others, but I still enjoyed them. And, and what was the engagement within the organization like when you first joined the organization? You know, our engagement overall was was probably in the 50s or 60s. It wasn't, you know, the horrible number that, you know, during the pandemic, it went in global engagement went down to, uh, reported by ADP research, down to about 16%. Um, so we weren't in, you know, in the bottom end, but... Um, because the company was has always been one for sixty nine years, that's how old it is. That you know did really think about its people. But going forward, we had to grow, and you know I I was really intrigued around the opportunity when I took over as CEO. I was I was scared but not afraid. But what I really needed to do was understand how we could build a culture where servant leadership was uh, really the thing that was the most important thing. 
And I think when I'm talking to leaders now, I think there are leaders that intuitively understand the power of unlocking their people. And there are leaders who don't particularly see that as one of their biggest levers to pull. What's your perspective on the power of that lever of your people to move an organization forward? Thank you for asking that question. You know, if you think about business, there are two things. There's the strategy of the business and strategies about, you know, where do we want to go? And then there's execution is about how we're going to do it. So let's say we wrote a strategy and we took it to Harvard or one of the best universities and we had a very smart professor look at our strategy and they say, very fine strategy, very fine strategy, 70 out of 100. Very good strategy. Thank you. So then we go back to the organization and we've got to execute the strategy. So what if only 30% of the people in the organization were engaged, which means they went to work every day, passionate about you know, doing what they need to do around the, the strategy of the company? 30 times 70 is 2,100. There you go. Simple math. But if 80% of the people were engaged, 80 times 70, 5,600. So it's the will of the people times the strategy that produces the outcome. And the great thing about WD-40 company is we've proven that because we've, over a 25-year period, we've 6 x our revenue, we've 10X'd our, our value on the, on the stock exchange, and we have employee engagement at 93%. 98% of our people say they love to tell people they work at the company, and 97% of our people say they respect their coach. Now, their coach is their boss. We don't have managers around here. You manage bank accounts. Your role as a as a leader, is to be the best possible coach you can be for the people that you're privileged to lead. So, you know, I can kind of call BS a little bit to the leaders who say that the, the, the will of the people doesn't matter. You know, I think we all agree if we've got a group of people that enjoy what they're doing, they're going to do a better job than if they don't enjoy what they're doing. And was that something that was clear to you on day one? Or was there a moment when that suddenly became clear to you that the path ahead was about the people? Well, I was very curious about it. And fortunately, just after I became CEO, I was looking around and I came across the Master of Science in Executive Leadership program at the University of San Diego. And I went to an information session on that. And Dr. Ken Blanchard, who I then wrote a book with, who became my mentor and is my very dear friend, he's 83 years old now. He said, most MBA programs get people in the head. What we've got to start doing is also getting people in the heart. And that really rang true with me. And I said, I've got to do this program. So here I am. I'm already the CEO of a US public company. I'm going back to school <laughs> because I needed to confirm what I think I knew and learn what I didn't know. And for the next two years, I, I really immersed myself in understanding the power of servant leadership. And it was those learnings that we put to work at WD-40 Company. And subsequent to that, we've put nearly 35 people through that same master's program to really embed the power of servant leadership in the organization. And for the context of people listening to this who might not be super familiar with uh, in employee engagement scores, what does 93% look like when you compare to other organizations? Oh, it's about three times. Most organizations gallop now. What's the gallop number? The 30-something percent. 
Uh, as I said, during COVID, um, you know, a friend of ours, Herbert Jolet, who um, wrote, wrote the book The Heart of Leadership, uh, in his book he quotes that during um, COVID, uh, ADP research surveyed 1,900 co- companies globally and engagement was down to 16%. And you, you can believe that to be true, I guess, given the uncertainty we were going through. You keep using this phrase servant leadership. So unpack that for us. And you know, what do you mean when you say servant leadership? I think the simple um, explanation of that is something that Simon Sinek says. And he, said, le- he says, leadership is not about being in charge. Leadership is about taking care of the people in your charge. So servant leadership, you know, if you think about servant leadership, if we were think of, thinking about it like a pyramid, so if, if you take those listening, take your hands and make a pyramid out of your fingers. And at the beginning of the servant leadership, the leader is at the top of the pyramid. And the leader's role is to ensure that we have a clear strategy, that we have resources, you know, that directionally we know where we're going. And as soon as that happens, you turn the pyramid upside down and the leader goes to the bottom. And now it's about empowering, encouraging, cheering on those that are there that are actually going to do the work. You know, when I was in high school in Australia many, many years ago talking about culture, my science teacher gave me a Petri dish. And the science teacher said, what we're going to do is we're going to grow culture in this Petri dish. And here's a few learnings I had from that. Number one, what's important? What do you put in the Petri dish? So you need to put ingredients in the Petri dish that's going to grow the culture that you want to grow. And in an organization where you're wanting to grow a great culture, what are the ingredients? Well, it's a people-first organization, a clear purpose, a compelling set of values, a place of belonging, uh, a, 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 a real attitude of learning and teaching. All these ingredients go in the Petri dish. And then what do you have to do as a leader? You have to be watching that Petri dish every day. And you have to love your people enough to be feeding the good ingredients. And then you have to be brave enough as a leader to attack the toxins. And you have to do it day after day after day. Because if you don't, those toxins will send that Petri dish sour in a heartbeat. So, you know, culture in an organization is not about sprinkling some fairy dust over the organization or bringing in some program that just goes on for three months and everybody thinks everyone will change. This is a, it's perpetual in nature. It's a never ending job of a leader to continually uh, feed that Petri dish to grow great culture. And it's fascinating where you, you, you call out that essential element of leadership, which is bravery. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's hard to be brave as a leader. You know, leadership it's about being having a heart of gold and a and a backbone of steel, and or being tough minded and tender hearted, and it's the tough minded, tender hearted. When you get in the middle, it's the and in the middle is where the success is. And I think that the coach style of leadership, when it works well, it is that balance. And sometimes when it works badly, is it's all support, no challenge. And you get this very indulgent kind of culture, but it doesn't actually generate the results that, that you need. So how do you, how do you identify the people who've got the potential to be those leaders in your organization? Or do you think everyone has that potential? I think everybody has a potential, but let's go back to the role of the coach for a minute. Let's think about the role of the coach. And let's think about it 
in the eyes of the coach of a soccer team. So great coaches don't run onto the field and kick the ball. Great coaches don't go to the podium and pick up the prize. What does a great coach do? A great coach is always running up and down the sideline, observing the play. And what is the responsibility of the coach? It's to advise and coach the player to play their best game. So in the book we wrote, I wrote with Ken Blanchard, it's about helping people get A's. So what does an A look like? And what is the other most important thing that a coach should do? The coach needs to spend a lot of time in the locker room because that's where they're building the culture. So it's about you know helping the individual player play their best game and also helping the team play its best game. A lot of coaches think they're referees and they want to run on and blow the whistle and give someone a red card and send them to the bench. That ha- has no effect on in- increasing the, the ability of the, of the soccer or the player to play the game. The other side of coaching is the person you're coaching needs to uh, agree that, you know, we're, we're, my job here is to help identify how you can play a better game. And sometimes we're going to go and ask people in the bleachers and your other teammates, how are you a good team player? So coaching, you know, is not about running on the field and it's not about being the referee. It's about continual improvement. When you're talking to people in the workforce about finding work that they love and finding that engagement, how much do you think people can take ownership of finding that? And how much do you think they need others to create the right conditions for them to love their work? Well, I think there's two things there. I, I think people know what work they love, but then when, where do they do that work? Does that allow them to enjoy loving what they do? And again, you know, in organizations where people are not treated with respect and dignity, where, you know, there isn't justice, where there isn't a, a psychological safety, you know, one of the things that we say at WD40 Company is we, we don't make mistakes. In fact, I have never made a mistake in my life. Does that surprise you? Given your, your self-styled introduction slightly. So, but what I have had are millions of learning moments. So we don't call mistakes mistakes. We call them learning moments. This is how you create psychological safety. So what's the definition of a learning moment? The definition of a learning moment is a positive or negative outcome of any situation that needs to be openly and freely shared to benefit all people. That's psychological safety. So in our company, in anywhere around the world, in any of the 17 or 18 offices around the world, if you were there multiple times during a day, you'd hear someone say, you know what, I had a learning moment about that, or I want to share a learning moment with you. So we don't make mistakes. We have learning moments, which is really, when you think about it, Learning and teaching is the cornerstone of tribal behavior. You know, we call ourselves a tribe, not a team. And it's not because we're wanting to align with any indigenous group at all. What we're talking about is the principles of tribalism, which is where, where, where humanity started. You know, Ugg, the, the caveman, was a tribal person. And if you were to think about, and, and one thing about a tribe is you belong to a tribe. You play on a team. And if we were, if we, you and I were able to go back in a time warp and observe my home country's indigenous people thousands of years ago at a meeting, what would the tribal elder be doing? That tribal elder will be teaching the tribe members how to throw a boomerang. Why? 
because the boomerang is or was the tool of survival. So what's the number one responsibility of a tribal leader or a coach? To be a continual learner and teacher to help the tribe members, the younger tribe members or those coming through to play a better game. It's not really rocket science. In your shift at WD40 from 50-60 employee engagement through to 93, do you attribute that to a small number of specific identifiable shifts that you've made like big shifts or is it the combination of a thousand small shifts in the culture in the way that you leave the way you create the tribe i think number one it was creating the key elements which are number one a people-centric organization number two a clearly defined purpose number three having a set of values that um, protect people set them free uh, and then having a absolute dedication to learning. So there's the framework. And at the bottom of the framework, there's strategy and there's tact- execution. Then there's four pillars of care, candor, accountability, and responsibility. So you put that model on those pillars, that's the starting point. And then it's embedding that and living that and promoting that and working through that day after day after day. Because our scores didn't go from 40 to 50 to 93 overnight. You know, we've been doing this for 20 years. So, you know, they slowly built over time as we measured them around the world, but the principle stayed in place. You know, those four pillars of care. Well, what does that mean? It means that the leader's empathy eats their ego instead of their ego eating their empathy. You care for your people enough so you reward them and applaud them for doing great work but you also are brave enough to redirect them when they need to play a better game. What's candor? A candor is no lying, no faking, no hiding. I believe most people don't lie in organizations. I believe they fake and hide. Why do they fake and hide? Because they're afraid. Why, how do you take the fear away? So that's very important. So care, candor, accountability is most people in organizations aren't, don't have a, have a high degree of clarity on what an A looks like or what they're going to be held accountable for. So that leaves a big gap in the accountability um, area. And then responsibilities, what are we going to hold ourselves responsible for? And are we going to be responsible for our actions and what we do? So a CEO comes to you and says, I've read your book, I've heard your talk, I've got your framework, I've put it in place, it's up on the wall, I've told everybody that's what we're doing, and nothing's changed. What is it in the behavioral actions of the CEO that drive the effective implementation of this approach? Well, first thing they did was wrong is they put it up on the wall. Um, it's got to be on, on coffee-stained paper and actually put into action. Uh, is the CEO, you know, you, again, you can't frame this and think it's going to work. And in the book that I wrote with Ken Blanchard, we actually embed these behaviors and the feedback around that in our quarterly discussions with our people. So, you know, again, it's not a framed, you know, program that's you, you've got. To, and, and then are the leaders in the organization actually living to what, you know, we've decided we want to be? Because you know, organizations, cultures are a shadow of the leader. That's really powerful. It's a really powerful and iconic image, actually. Mm-hmm. We hear a lot today about bringing your whole self to work. How's your approach to being engaged at work evolved and adapted to reflect the expectations of the modern 
workforce? Well, you know, I, I, I don't think we take parts of ourselves to anything. You know, I didn't leave my, my arm at home last night. So if I think about it that way, uh, if you give people an environment where they enjoy what they're doing, not only do we want them to, to be there, you know, you don't have to leave your heart at home when you come to work. That's not what we want people to do, or your head. Um, so I think that really, again, it comes to what are we, how do we make it so that when someone walks out the door in the morning and they're actually going to a physical office, they, they give their, their husband, wife, significant other a high five and say, I can't get to wait. I can't wait to get be with my people today because fill in the blank. And it's, a, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, hybrid work and, and virtual work. We, we have to go back to a hybrid environment. We can't be virtual all the time. Human beings are social animals. And you see now when they are able to get back together, they're flocking together because we miss each other. We absolutely. Now, having said that, I think during COVID, we learned that there are some things that we can do better that where we I don't want people to have to travel to the office to sit in front of a screen all day. Why would they want to do that? However, there are things that we have to come together for. So I think, again, leadership has a challenge now to work that out. What is that? And I think. In a lot of ways, sadly, COVID gave us a slap up the side of the head and said, we do need to think about this a bit differently. And the companies that are going to thrive in the future are those that are brave enough to think about it and understand that we have to handle it in a little different way. I'm on the board of an elite dance academy in the UK called the Rombert School, which is a little bit like Juilliard in, mm. in the US. Um, and in COVID, they obviously had to send all the students home and they carried on their dance classes on Zoom. And everybody was in their bedrooms or in their gardens doing the dance exercises and doing choreography and all of this. And there's a video on YouTube by a student called Blair Moore called Away As One. And it's one of the most evocative videos I saw all the way through the pandemic because it's about people who were finding their future in dance. And I was like, if you can, do, if you can run a dance school online, then you can definitely run most businesses online, which is much, much easier to do. And I do think it made us think very, very differently about how to engage people. You know, so if you, if you can't be in the same place as each other, it doesn't mean you can't be connected with each other. And I, and I do feel at the moment as though we're forgetting some of the things that we learned in COVID as we are coming back together. And, and a lot of people are saying, and I, I find myself doing this, you know, in, in, <laughs> in a moment where I'm not thinking hard enough, you know, is, wouldn't it just be easier if we we're back in the room together? And often, as you say, that is just a great outcome, but sometimes that's not possible. And we need to hold on to some of the lessons that we learned in the pandemic and in, in those remote times and say, well, you know, there's so much great technology now. It doesn't need to mean you can't belong just because you can't be in the room together. Yeah, I think one of the things we learned in COVID is in times of real need, we can pivot around fear. And that's what we did a lot in COVID. We pivoted around there was a real need for us to be able to operate virtually. And prior to that, the fear was we couldn't do it. So we had to pivot around that fear and find a way to do it. And I think there was a lot like that. You know, I, I think our company is a better company having been through COVID. Uh, I, I, but, you know, I wish we hadn't have gone through it. I wish we would have been smart enough to understand that before. But, you know, life is a series of lessons, right? Big learning moments. 
We haven't talked about the topic of diversity, which is obviously a massive topic at, at the moment in the workforce. What's your perspective on the role of diversity in creating an engaged workforce? Are they two separate topics or do you think they're closely interwoven? Well, I've had the, the privilege of working alongside people in about 70 countries around the world. And one of the things I treasure the most is hearing the different points of view of people, whether they be in, you know, China or Germany or the UK or, you know, wherever else, Italy. And then also people that are coming from, I don't have to, you know, agree with you, but I, I do need to acknowledge that you're different. And that's okay. And I think as a, an organization, you know, I think the people who work in the organization should reflect the customers that they serve. Because if they don't reflect the customers they serve, how are we going to understand the idiosyncrasies of the customers? So, you know, I'm very proud of the diversity in WD40. I think about 50% of our tribe members globally are female. You know, we've got, you know, more non US type people globally than in the US. And, you know, we've got 70 people in Germany and I don't know how many in France and 65 in China. And, and one of the wonderful things is when we can all come together, we're just one big tribe. And the reason we are is what holds us together is our values. It doesn't matter where we are or where we come from or what we stand for. The company values are something that we all agree on. 97% of our tribe globally say that they feel aligned with our company values, which is so important. So whether they're LGBTQ, whether they're a person of color, whether they're Australian, English, you know, French, German, Chinese or whatever, 97% of them around the world said they are aligned, they feel aligned with our values. And when you meet somebody who's just joined the firm or is going to join the firm and you think, that's a great WD-40 person, what do you see in that person? Someone who's sincere, who respects people, um, who understands that it's not about an ego, it's about empathy, um, someone who wants to be challenging and curious, someone who wants to be a learner, someone who wants to throw sunshine, not a shadow. Um, those are the sort of things that I think you know, are, are really part of a WD-40 person. And what process do you, do you take people through when they join the organization to bring them into this tribe and, and make them feel a part of that whole? That well, the like? process starts way before they join us. If you were to go to our website and go to our careers page, the first thing that gets thrown at you is these are our values. If you don't feel you can align to, are aligned with them, don't call us. Um, and then we go through a, a, a really um, deliberate uh, welcoming time. And most people who join the company, about six months after they join, myself or one of our, our, our leaders will go to them and say, did we lie to you about this culture? And in my 25 years as CEO, I've never had anyone say yes. And in most cases, they said, we have exceeded, our, you've exceeded our expectation. We didn't think it was like this when we came in. We heard it was, but we believe it is. You know, I before we came on the podcast today, I was in a in a little ceremony where one of our twenty year tribe members was retiring, and she said, twenty years ago she joined the company. She's loved every day, and she would never have wanted to work anywhere else. It's amazing. It's amazing. And 
for a lot of organizations, you know, particularly high, high growing organizations, when it's the founder or the first 10 people or the first 100 people, you can kind of create and, 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 and keep a culture because it's a small group of people. You all know each other very well. You're probably all in the same room together or, or in the same kind of location. How, how do you hold on to a culture as a company scales into multiple countries, much, much bigger organization? How do you make it systematic? How do you make it truly embedded so it doesn't require a handful of specific people to keep it alive? Consistency. You know, if you think about our purpose at the company, our purpose is we exist to create positive, lasting memories. We're in the memories business. It's always been like that. Our values, our values have been consistent for 20 years. We may have tweaked a couple of words along the way. Uh, in our talent development program, uh, we talk about it all the time. We talk about our values and what we stand for as an organization. And if someone is adding toxins to the to the uh, Petri dish, um, if you can't treat those toxins, we have to pull them out of the Petri dish and we have to share them with the competitor. It's interesting. That was my next question. That you know, you're talking a lot about what what creates and what fuels a culture, but what kills it in an organization when when they've had a good culture at some point and now they've lost it? What are the things that kill a culture in an organization? Um, the absolute reverse of what builds it. <laughs> Suddenly, leadership doesn't um, behave in line with or support what has made us great. You know, culture is a competitive advantage and culture is something that you have to take care of every day. And if you allow, you know, a great example would be, you know, you have someone who's who's achieving remarkable results, yet they're a son of a bee to everybody. If you let that people stay because it's only the results that matter, suddenly that toxin is, well, I can behave any way I want as long as I bring in the results. So, you know, if I wanted to be a total B, I can be a total D. Those sort of leadership not living up to their commitment around what makes a culture great. That comes back to the thing you were saying earlier about bravery. As a, as a top leader, you've got to be able to spot and then proactively and quickly do something about those things that kill a culture because they can happen quickly, can't they? Yeah, well, it's again, if you're being a great coach, then you're doing that. If you're not being a great, you know, I'll give you a very quick example of how that can work. So one of our, our second value is we value creating positive, lasting memories in all of our relationships. So some time ago, we were in a meeting and it was early one morning and someone was not creating positive, lasting memories. They were having a bad day. So what do you do as a coach? Well, number one is you... If you're a great coach, you don't act as the referee, give them the red card and send them out of the room because that sends a message to everyone else in the room. If you're not a good coach, you don't you, you do nothing, which again is adding toxins to the dish. So that meeting ended. So what did we do? I went to that person, I said, let's go for a walk. And we walked outside and I I looked behind a, a trash can and in a tree, and the person said, What the hell are you doing? I said, I'm looking for you. I said, what do you mean you're looking for me? I said, the you I know and love was not in that room today. What's on your mind? What's getting in your way? And we had a conversation and my, you know, the person had had a disruptive morning. Nothing serious, but it was one of those mornings that sent them sour. 
And, you know, we, we went back to our values and said, I know you absolutely love our values and you live by our values of creating positive, lasting memories. And you weren't doing that today. And they said, yeah, that's right. I know. Thank you for the coaching. Thank you for the learning moment. That person went back in and, and touched base with a couple of people that were in the room and said to them, you know, I'm sorry, <laughs> I just had a bad morning. And I said, we knew that wasn't you. Are you okay? And what did we notice the next day? People going to that person and going, hey, are you okay today? So, you know, if if those are the sort of behaviours and if you can act on them as being a great coach, living your values, you know, we didn't send someone to the bench with a red card and made them feel bad. We reminded them that these learning moments are okay. Amazing. So if you, there are, there'll be some senior leaders listening into this podcast. They might be sitting there going, you know, this, a lot of this resonates with me. I'm struggling to engage with my employees. I'm struggling to create the culture that I need. Where do you get them to start? And I know you've talked before in, in, in other, in other um, engagements that you've done about decisions that a leader has to make before committing to cultural transformation. So where do people start in this journey? Well, number one is as a leader, are you committed to the fact that it's all about the people? and that your role is to be a servant leader and to create an environment where people go to work every day and they make a contribution to something bigger than themselves, they learn something new, they're protected and set free by a compelling set of values and they go home happy. Do you, you buy into that? Okay, fine. So what are the elements you have to have in place? Okay. Do we have a clearly defined purpose? Have we you know, set up our value? You know, the, those whole, that whole model that we put together, you just have to find where the missing parts are. And then when you find where the missing parts are, you've got to be committed to filling that gap with what needs to be in place. And then you've got to live it every day. And it won't happen overnight, I'm telling you. But it, but, but it will happen. In, you, know, you will do it if you stick to it. And the thing I'm hearing that comes across so strongly is the, the role of personal transformation for the leader before they can see the transformation in their organization yeah. and culture. And for, for a lot of leaders, I think... That, that is a journey that is, in my terminology, an unlock moment for them when they figure out that it starts with them. That was my unlock moment when I went back to school, when I said, I've just become the CEO of a US public company. I was scared, but not afraid. My unlock moment was I had to learn, go back to school and learn the power of servant leadership, the power of the most three most important words I've ever learned in my life. I don't know. And how did that feel? It was it was scary, but it was good, and I'm so pleased and grateful that I had the opportunity to do it. Looking back on your career thus far, and thinking ahead to all the things you want to achieve, what's your sense of a legacy that you're building? Do you do you have an idea of a legacy you want to leave? Yeah, I build an enduring company that I'm proud to pass on to others, and. Just a week ago, I, I stepped down from my role as CEO at WD40 Company after 25 years. I'm still chairman of the board to the end of the year. But what I'm really dedicated to now is, as the culture coach, helping organizations and leaders who really, really are dedicated to this understand that it's doable and possible. I've just done my 25-year apprenticeship on servant leadership. I've got plenty of scar tissue, and I'm ready to put that to work. So here on out, I'm using my consulting business, which is called The Learning Moment, as the culture coach. I'm coaching CEOs around 
you know, some of the, the scar tissue and some of the roadblocks that get in the way. Because here's what I really, really am, am passionate about. Business today has the biggest opportunity ever to make a positive difference in the world. If we send people home happy, happy people create happy families. Happy families create happy communities. Happy communities create happy countries. Happy countries create a happy world. We need a happy world. So let's get on with doing what we can in the mass way we can as businesses to send people home happy. Now, there's a big plus side to that too. It will absolutely magnify and multiply the results of the organization you're in. Because if 80% of your people go to work every day and they're engaged, you're going to get a much better result than 20 people, 20% of your people going to work every day and being engaged. And what I really love about hearing everything you're saying is that you've proven it on all those dimensions, on the people engagement, on the performance of the business over many, many years and sustained it. So it's, it, it's such a resonant story that, that you tell. Where can people find out more about you and about the things you're going on to do now? Thank you. So uh, my website is www.thelearningmoment.net. And you can find me on LinkedIn. Please follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, I post articles there. Uh, I share my learning there. Love you to, to join me there and uh, um, be you know, connect and let's communicate. Fantastic. We'll put all those details in show notes as well. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For legendary leader and culture coach Gary Ridge, figuring out the way to unlock the potential in his people through building engagement and through that accountability, ownership, creativity, curiosity helped to create a world-renowned organization that leaders around the world look to emulate. Maybe you, my listeners, have found a moment of remarkable clarity in hearing Gary's inspirational discussion of how to create the conditions for people to love their work. If today was your unlock moment, then I'm delighted. Gary Ridge, it has been my great pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Thank you. Life's a gift. Don't send it back unwrapped. Thank you so much. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.